Okay, Joshua chapter 10, verses 12 through 15 is our scripture reading. Verse 12 says, On that day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, and Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you, moon, over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the nations avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Joshua. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There's never been a day like it before or since. A day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. Let's ask God to bless us as we look into his word this morning. Lord, we thank you that you are Lord of all. And in this world of chaos and confusion in which we live, thank you that we have a resting spot. We have a promise from your word, Lord, that you are the sovereign God who is in control that you are working out your purposes, not only on the world stage and world history, but also in our individual lives. Lord, we pray this morning that you would just open up our hearts and minds to your word this morning. Lord, thank you for this record of this remarkable story that we're going to look at. Lord, I pray that you would use your word to encourage us today, to convict us today, to change us to be more like you, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are in Joshua, and just a little uh, historical overview and reminder about the book of Joshua. It's a transition book because uh, Moses, the leader for 40 years, has died, and now a new leader's on the scene. His name is Joshua. He was Moses' right-hand man for those 40 years. And the nation of Israel, as the book opens, is at the edge of the Jordan River. It's at flood stage. God works a miracle, and two million Israelites cross through on dry ground, and they finally set foot in the land of Canaan. They set up camp at a place called Gilgal, and if you've been with us, you remember that four significant events happened at Gilgal. Number one, all the males were circumcised that had been neglected during those 40 years of wilderness wanderings, the mark of the covenant. Uh, Secondly, they remembered the Passover, probably only the second time that they observed the Passover. Uh, Thirdly, remember that the manna ceased for 40 years in the wilderness wanderings. God had provided manna every day, uh, and uh, that finally stopped because now they were able to live off the fruit of the land. And the fourth significant event is that Joshua had an encounter with someone who was known and identified themselves as the captain of Yahweh's army. And we said this was probably a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ who spoke truth directly into Joshua. Well, then uh, Joshua and the Israelites uh, move on to their first battle. And remember, it's Jericho. And uh, you remember that battle plan, walk around the city once a day for six days on the seventh day, seven times, blow your trumpets, and the walls came tumbling down, and the Israelites go in and conquer. There's one man, though, that didn't follow the instructions, the very clear instructions from God, that they were to take no spoils from this first battle. It was all to be dedicated to God. His name was Achan. And as Israel was ready for battle number two, a city called Ai, 
Uh, they sent just a few men, and it ended up in defeat. In fact, 36 um, soldiers were killed, and Joshua's wondering, what happened to God? And through a long process, God identifies one man. Here's the problem. There's sin in the camp. And Achan confesses his sin. And Achan and his entire family are stoned before the nation of Israel. We said they were probably complicit in that sin of Achan, his family, and now Joshua goes in with the army and they defeat a city called Ai and a nearby city called Bethel. And they have victory number two under their belt. Last week we talked about the danger of deception and discovered that a group of people from a nearby town called Gibeon deceived Joshua and the leaders of Israel into making a treaty, a covenant with them. Something that God had forbid them to do. God wanted the Gibeonites destroyed along with the rest of the Canaanites. And uh, the Gibeonites tricked, tricked Joshua. And now they have this, this covenant with the people of Gibeon. And we talked about um, how uh, Satan can easily deceive us and the dangers of deceptions that we face in our life. Well, that brings us to Joshua chapter 10. And we're going to look at this uh, chapter here. Uh, and I've entitled this, The Longest Day in History. The summer solstice, first day of summer, is about less than three months away. It's uh, from us, June June 21st. I always look forward to that day because there's so much daylight. I looked it up. The sun's going to rise before 6 a.m. It's not going to set until almost 9.30. We're going to have 15 and a half hours of daylight. I don't know about you, but when uh, the, the day lasts long, the daylight lasts long, um, I just seem to have a little more energy. You're a little more motivated to take on some projects and to work outside and enjoy those long daylight hours. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but maybe you're trying to complete a project. Maybe you're mowing the lawn. Maybe you're working on an outdoor project. Maybe you're you're painting your house or painting a shed, and it's summertime, and you're getting real close to being done. The sun's beginning to set, and you begin to think, Man, if I only had a little bit more daylight, I could finish this project. Maybe we've all been there. Well, that's where Joshua is in Joshua chapter 10. He needs a little more sunlight, daylight. And so he asks God to do something remarkable. So let's look at the story and look at the outline. And then we'll look at some uh, application principles from Joshua chapter 10. So the first point, here's the plan of attack on Gibeon. Remember I said that the Gibeonites made a a peace treaty with the Israelites. And even though God had forbid that, it was through deception that they made this peace treaty with with Joshua and the the leaders. And some of the other cities in Canaan uh, were not happy with the Gibeonites. Uh, They begin to hear about this invading force in Canaan, uh, two million Israelites, and they've heard about how they've already conquered uh, Jericho, Ai, Bethel, and then they hear about this treaty, this compact that they make contract with uh, the Gibeonites, and they're not happy. And so Joshua chapter 10 starts out with the king of Jerusalem. Remember in Canaan, There's about 30 different cities, all with individual kings or leaders in each one. And the leader of Jerusalem hears what's going on, and so he decides to make a uh, compact, an arrangement with four other nearby kings. 
because they're afraid of what the Israelites are doing. And so it says in verse 3, Adonai Zadak, that's the king of Jerusalem, appeals to the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, come up and help me attack Gibeon because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Then the five kings of the Amorites joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. So the king of Jerusalem gets four other nearby cities and they come together and they say, hey, we're going to fight against the Gibeonites because they made this peace treaty with the Israelites. Well, that was the, the plan of attack. And what do you think the Gibeonites do? They are thinking back to this peace treaty they made with uh, the Israelites. And so they make a plea for help. They send some in information to Joshua. And here you see the, the cities that uh, are nearby, uh, uh, the five cities. There's Jerusalem, Jarmuth, uh, uh, Hebron, uh, Lachish, Eglon, uh, Gilgal is where the Israelites were uh, stationed Gibeon is where they made their their peace treaty. And so there's uh, these five kings and they begin to attack Gibeon. And and Gibeon then asks for help from Joshua and the Israelites. And that's the the plea for help. They send out an SOS, uh, verse 6. Then the Gibeonites sent word to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal. Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. Hey, we need some help here. If you don't come join forces with us, we're gonna, we're gonna die. We're gonna be overtaken by these five kings and their, um, fighting men. So what does Joshua do? Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. And so Joshua marches from Gilgal to where uh, Gibeon's being attacked. It's about a 20-mile journey through rugged terrain, going up about 4,000 feet in elevation. Not a very easy task, but uh, that's what Joshua does because why? They've made this treaty and they're going to come and protect the Gibeonites. And so uh, the next uh, thought here, uh, the plan of attack, these five kings attack Gibeon. They ask Israel for help, and Joshua and his army come to help the Gibeonites in this battle. Now let's look at verse 8, the promise of God to Joshua. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I'm struck by how many times, just in the first nine or ten chapters of Joshua, that God says to Joshua, don't be afraid. He says it over and over again, uh, repeatedly. How many times do you have to tell Joshua not to be afraid? A lot. He's in the midst of battle. Uh, if, if Joshua needs that reminder not to be afraid, we need the reminder too in our uh, world in which we are living. Don't be afraid. Here's uh, the rest of verse 8. I have given them into your hands. That, uh, if you've been with us through Joshua, that uh, terminology sounds familiar. 
before they went into the battle of Jericho, God told Joshua, uh, I've already delivered them into your hands. The battle's already been won. Before they went into the battle of Ai the second time, God told Joshua the same thing. I've already delivered them into your hands. The battle has already been won. And now they're about to fight these five kings. What does God say to to Joshua to encourage him and to encourage the Israelite army? Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. Joshua, don't be afraid. Why? Because I've already given you the victory. It's already been won. And you just need to go in and follow my instructions. And so, again, encouragement to Joshua. What from from the promises of God? And what's going to give us courage in the world in which we live when we look around and listen to the news and see what's happening in our world? It's the promises of God that are going to encourage us and uh, help us not to be afraid. Well, let's look at the powerful victory. Uh, Beginning in verse 9, the powerful victory after an all-night march from Gilgal. So Joshua and his soldiers are making this 20-mile march, and they do it at nighttime. It says, after an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. So here's a a surprise attack in military warfare. um, Surprise uh, is very much a part of military tactics, isn't it? You you don't want your enemy to do to know when you're coming or if you're coming. uh, The element of surprise. Think about December 7th, 1941. Uh, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. One of the key elements of that was that it happened on a Sunday morning when no one was expecting anything to happen. It was a leisurely Sunday morning. People were taking their time, having coffee, having breakfast, and all of a sudden the sound of Japanese airplanes in the distance. And they come and they devastate Pearl Harbor with a surprise attack. Well, that's what Joshua is doing with these uh, these troops. They they march all night long, and there's really four elements to this victory. Number one, the surprise attack, an all night march by Joshua and the Israelite army. Look at verse ten. Here's the second aspect of this: the Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Now, what exactly does that mean? I I don't know, but somehow God confused the enemy so that Joshua and his army could easily defeat those five other armies. And so God confused them in their minds. There's a third element that God used in this victory. And uh, let me just continue to read through the text. Israel pursued the enemy. all along the road, this is the last part of verse 10, going up to Beth Horon and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Makedah. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them, and more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. So God's, Israel's fighting, But God's doing some intervening miracles here. 
he throws the enemy into confusion and then he uses large hailstones to kill the enemy. I did a little Google research um, when I was studying this this week and uh, I Googled largest hailstones recorded in the United States. What's, what's the size of the largest hailstone recorded? And uh, here's what I came up with. July 23rd, 2010, so pretty recent, in South Dakota, hailstones eight inches in diameter. <laughs> That's a hailstone about like that. If you would get hit with an eight-inch hailstone, um, you, you would be in some serious trouble. Uh, so God intervenes and he has these hailstones that come down and that kill more than Joshua and his army killed by the sword. But there's a fourth element to this powerful victory and it's the most well-known part of this story. Uh, and part number four is the prolonged daylight. Joshua is just about ready to, to defeat the enemy. And the sun is going down and, and he needs more time. And so Joshua prays a big, bold prayer. And we read it in our scripture reading this morning. God, would you make the sun stand still and the moon to stop until I can finish the battle? And it says in scripture that the sun uh, stood still. It says, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There was never been a day like it before or since. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Now, there's been lots of speculation exactly how good God did this. And quite frankly, the scriptures don't tell us. It's just that God intervened in history God suspended the natural laws of, of nature that he created to make the daylight last a really long time. So how he did it, we don't know, but we know that God could easily do that and that God um, intervened and prolonged the daylight. And now uh, we want to move to the prophetic words of Joshua and catch the rest of the story and uh, chapters 16 through, or verses 16 through 27 give us the rest of the story here of exactly what happened. Verse 16, now the five kings had fled and hidden in a cave at Makeda. When Joshua was told that the five kings had been found hiding in the cave at Makeda, he said, roll large rocks up to the mouth of the cave and post some men there to guard it. So, these five kings know things aren't going well. They hide in a cave. Joshua's told, and now they, they take these big stones and they trap them in that cave. Joshua tells the rest of his army to, to continue fighting, and they continue fighting and, and win the victory. And then verse 22 says, Joshua says, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me. He knows they're in there. So they brought the five kings out of the cave. And when they had brought the five kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with him, come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. So the kings are on the ground. They put their feet on the necks of these five kings. Joshua said to them, 
Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. He's talking to his soldiers. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you're going to fight. Then Joshua put the kings to death and exposed their bodies on five poles, and they were left hanging on the poles until evening. If I was telling this story to my grandsons, that would be their favorite part. <laughs> Our grandson number two's favorite story in all the Bible is David and Goliath, and he, he knows exactly what happened. Yeah, and then, then he took the sword and he, he cut Goliath's head off. <laughs> A pretty gruesome ending to this story. But here are these five kings that, that God and the Israelites defeated, and now they're on five poles, and it's a testimony. This is what God's going to do to the rest of Canaan. And so at sunset, Joshua gave the order, and they took them down from the poles and threw them into the cave where they had been hiding. At the mouth of the cave, they placed large rocks where they are to this day. And now Israel is making headway into Canaan. They've defeated Jericho. They've defeated Ai. Now they def- and Bethel, a nearby city. Now they've defeated five other cities in one battle as they begin to take um, over the land of Canaan. And Joshua said, this is what's going to happen to the rest of the nation of Canaan. Uh, we will be victorious. And so uh, the rest of chapter 10 is really kind of a summary of the southern campaign. There were three campaigns to, to defeat Canaan. There was a central campaign, a southern campaign, a northern campaign. And here's the southern campaign. I'm just going to read the towns. Uh, verse 28, that day Joshua took Makeda. Uh, verse uh, 29, uh, then the Lord gave... Uh, uh, not only Mecca to verse 31, rather Libna, from Libna to Lachish, and they defeated them. Verse 34, they defeat Eglon. Verse 36, Hebron. Verse 38, Deber. And now uh, the Israelites are uh, beginning to gain lots of territory in uh, the land of Canaan as they have victory after victory by following what God has told them to do. Well, that's Joshua chapter 10 in this remarkable story of uh, God intervening and giving Joshua and the, the Israelites more light to complete the battle. Well, this morning, I want to just think about some life lessons from Joshua chapter 10, and I'm really going to hone in on one aspect of this story, and it's Joshua's prayer. I'm calling it a big, bold prayer where Joshua says, God, would you stop the sun and the moon, I need more time. And so we want to think about uh, five principles of prayer as we think about Joshua's prayer from chapter 10, uh, verse, verses 12 and 13. And here's, here's the first one, the first principle of prayer that we want to apply to our lives, and it has to do with the purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer. Many Christians... Uh, oftentimes myself included, misunderstand the purpose of prayer. For many Christians, uh, prayer becomes kind of like the genie in the lamp approach. We don't pray or take prayer seriously until like maybe we're in a tight spot and oh, we better pray and 
And then, uh, you know, out comes a genie and got it. Okay, here's my, here's my requests, God. Someone said most Christians treat prayer like a spare tire in their car. And they turn to it when they're, they're, they're in trouble. Uh, we misunderstand the purpose of prayer. Robert Law said prayer is not about getting our will done in heaven, but God's will done on earth. Prayer is not about getting our will done in heaven, but God's will done on earth. And of course, that's the model of the Lord's Prayer or the disciples' prayer when the disciples came to Jesus and said, will you teach us how to pray? Jesus said, this is how you ought to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said, we're to pray that God's will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. And so the purpose of prayer is not to get our will done in heaven, but God's will done on earth. One commentator says, when we pray thy will be done, we acknowledge God's right to rule. Asking that God's will be done is a demonstration of our trust that he knows what is best. It is a statement of submission to God's ways and his plans. We ask for our will to be conformed to his. Jesus demonstrated this in the Garden of Gethsemane, didn't he? He's facing his um, crucial moment. The cross is right before him. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Hebrews says he's, he's uh, sweating blood. He's so in the intensity of his prayer. And Jesus says, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, God, but your will be done. Again, someone has said, thy will be done is not an impassive prayer of resignation. Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane was not passive or fatalistic. He, based, he bared his soul before the Father and revealed his ultimate desire for God's will to be accomplished. Praying thy will be done acknowledges that God has more knowledge than we do and we trust what is best. And so the purpose of prayer uh, is to get what God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. Secondly, uh, just thinking about prayer and Joshua's prayer, the second thought here is that God always answers our prayers. And we need to be reminded of that, don't we? That God always answers our prayers. Jeremiah 33, 3, call unto me and I will what? Answer you. God answers our prayers. Now in testimony times, we, we usually hear the answers of prayer. Uh, and we'll, and, and I, and I understand this. We'll stand up and say, I want to share this great testimony because God answered my prayer. And kind of what we mean by that is God granted us what we requested. But even if God doesn't grant us what we request, He still answers our prayers. God sometimes says yes. God sometimes and oftentimes says no. And God sometimes says, not now, need to wait, my timing's perfect. But God always answers our prayers. I remember 
back in 1981. My uh, mom died of cancer at the age of 50. Pastor's wife, um, great helpmeet for my dad. Long journey with cancer. Um, people praying, church praying for my mom. Hundreds, maybe thousands of people praying for my mom that should be healed. And my mom died in October of 1981 at the age of 50. Remember my dad at the funeral service stood up and thanked everybody for their prayers. And he said this, we prayed and prayed and prayed that my wife would be healed. And today she is. That's how God answered that prayer. God always, always answers our prayers. Number three, Truth number three is this. Sin in our lives hinders our prayer life. So sin in our lives hinders our, our prayer life. Psalm 66, 18, the psalmist says, If I regard sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So one of the things we have to do for God to answer our prayers is, first of all, we have to have a clean heart. Because sin creates a barrier between us and God, and sin in our lives always, always uh, hinders our prayer life. So imagine it like this. Um, you've got your, your family, your young kids, and you're watching them all day long, and uh, uh, they want to go for, for ice cream later in the day. And uh, so... Um, that's kind of a tentative plan, and, and uh, here's the, the kids all day, and they are disobedient. Uh, they are not getting along with each other. They are fighting. They are being defiant. You're having to discipline them all. And then at the end of the day, the kids come and say, oh, by the way, uh, can we go for ice cream? And mom and dad are probably going to say, uh, not today, guys. <laughs> not the way you behaved. But imagine if they wanted to go for ice cream, and that day... Um, they had been obedient, and they'd gotten along, and they were listening to every in instruction and following it and going the extra mile. And then at the end, they said, hey, can we go for ice cream? Mom and dad might say, you know what? I think that would be a good idea. Well, that's not a perfect illustration, but uh, sin in our lives hinders our prayer life. First Peter chapter three, verse seven, Peter's giving instructions, first of all, to wives, and then he gives instruction to husbands. And in verse seven of first Peter three, husbands in the same way be considered as you live with your wives, treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Husbands, you better treat your wife with respect and honor, because if your relationship with your wife isn't right, guess what? That's going to hinder your prayer life. And so our relationships have an impact. Sin in our life hinders our prayers. Now the fourth thought here, principles of prayer, and these are um, kind of random here, but here's, here's another one. Um, number four, there is a biblical pattern of prayer. Um, I learned this years ago. That when you study the prayers of the Bible, there's a little bit of a pattern there. 
And it's the acrostic ACTS, A-C-T-S. And when you study some of the prayers of the Bible, uh, here's what it stands for. A stands for adoration. That uh, when we when we pray, we come into God's presence and He is what? He is the, the creator of the world, the creator of the universe. And we need to what? Adore and worship Him. Thank you, God, that you're a loving God, that you're a merciful God, that you're the God of all creation, that you're just and you're holy. Secondly, confession. So we, we start with praise, but then we want to make sure that there's there's nothing in our life that's going to hinder our prayer life. So maybe maybe there's a sin that needs to be confessed to restore that fellowship. And then there's thanksgiving. Lord, thank you for for all that you've done. And uh, you know what, with with what's going on in the world today, um, over in uh, Ukraine, uh, I find I'm a little more thankful these days. When I'm in the shower, I thank the Lord I've got running water. I thank the Lord I've got a, a bed to lay on at night. I thank the Lord that I don't have to, to live life afraid of bombs falling on me or my children or my grandchildren. Lord, thank you so much for your blessings in our lives and then lastly, the S stands for supplication. That's where you can uh, ask for your request. And too often we just uh, run into God's presence and say, God, I need this, I need this, I need this. And so that's a little bit of the pattern of prayer. You can find it in Nehemiah chapter 1, uh, verses 5 through 10. That that pattern is uh, very clearly illustrated there. But uh, let me conclude with uh, this last principle of prayer. And just uh, some words that should characterize our prayer life. So characteristics of prayer. Let me just give you some words that come straight out of Scripture that should characterize our uh, our prayer life. Uh, here's the first two. Confidence and boldness. Confidence and boldness. Hebrews 4.16 let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may find mercy and receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Oh man, we can go boldly right into God's presence, can't we? Uh, with confidence through the blood of Jesus. Remember in the Old Testament, in the, in the tabernacle, in the temple, they had the, the holy of holy, the holy place, and then the holy of holies that only the high priest could go one time a year after he offered a sin offering for himself. And then when Jesus died on the cross, that curtain was, was ripped from top to bottom, and now we can come straight into God's presence with confidence and boldness that he will hear us. doesn't matter what time of day or night. He will hear us and we can approach his throne with confidence and with boldness. Hebrews uh, chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, some of the translations say, boldness to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way opened us for us through the curtain that is his body. And so uh, we have access to God. And we can go confidently and boldly right into his presence. Uh, secondly, or thirdly, perhaps, another word that should characterize our prayer life is power. 
Bible says there's power in prayer. James chapter 5, verse 16. Uh, the prayer of a righteous person is what? Powerful and effective. I'm going to say, including myself, most of us probably don't really believe that. Because we believe there was power in prayer. We would certainly pray a lot more. Joshua must have believed that. God, would you make the sun stand still? Would you stop the moon? Because I need more time. And the illustration in James is of Elijah. You remember that story that he goes before the uh, the king there and he says, hey, there's not going to be dew nor rain until I say so. And there's Joshua for... Um, Three years, there was a drought in the land. And uh, let me go ahead and, and read the, the text rather than trying to, to paraphrase it here. But Josh, James chapter 5, uh, the illustration of power and prayer is Elijah. Elijah was a human being just like we are. He was just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. And so there's power in prayer. I trust if we believe that, that we're, um, we're praying and interceding, um, for our kids, for our families, uh, for our grandkids. Uh, they need to know that we are, um, constantly, consistently, um, upholding them in prayer. Lamentations chapter 2, verse 19. Arise, cry out in the night as the watches of the night begin. Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to Him for the lives of your children. Praying for your kids. Praying for your grandkids. There's power in prayer. And, and uh, oh boy, we need, to, we need to plug into that on a regular, regular basis. And so uh, boldness and confidence and power. Um, the next one is persistence. Matthew chapter 7. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talking about prayer. And he says, I want you to keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened and so this, the, the, the thought is that we need to be what? Persistent in our prayer life. Oftentimes, pray about something for a week, ten days. God doesn't seem to be answering it the way I think he should. And so, uh, okay, I'll move on to something else. And God says, no, keep seeking. Keep asking. Keep knocking. Luke chapter 11, verse 10 is a great a uh, story that Jesus tells about uh, what happens when we persistently pray. He talks about a friend that came at midnight and they just keep knocking and knocking and knocking and the person says, I'm in bed for the night, go away. And they keep knocking and knocking and finally he says, because of their persistence, the King James uses the word importunity, it means persistence, he finally got up and answered. And Jesus says, that's how you need to pray. You need to be persistent. And then lastly, the last uh, word here is uh, is patience. And I guess patience and persistence goes hand in hand when I think about uh, our prayer. 
lives. And so this is difficult for us in our American culture because uh, we are conditioned for instant results. And most Americans don't like to wait for anything. And so, you know, we have fast food and if our line's taken too long, we, we, we get impatient. And we have microwave ovens and we have computers that if they aren't booting up and giving it to us really exactly quickly when we want, we get frustrated and we get impatient because we don't like to wait for anything. We want it now. And when it comes to prayer, God says, you need to be not only persistent, but you need to be patient. Phillips Brooks was a pastor in New England during the late 1800s. He was known as a calm and relaxed man. But one particular evening, a friend found him pacing the floor like a caged lion. And when the friend asked him what was wrong, Brooks replied, the trouble is I'm in a hurry. And God is not. The Bible says God is long-suffering. Macrothumio. And God is very, very, very patient. I'm so thankful that He's patient in my life. He's patient with us. So perhaps the great illustration, and with this we'll close, of, of patience and persistence is the story of George Mueller, who was a great, great uh, English man, and he had an orphanage over in England for many years. Um, George Mueller was one who would never tell others about his prayer needs. He would not be one to call the church and say, would you pray for this need? He just prayed for it on his own. And the story of George Mueller, of how God provided for those uh, those kids in the orphanage, uh, the remarkable stories through the prayer life of George Mueller. But uh, here's the story of George Mueller. The title is His Persistent Prayer for Five Individuals. Uh, he writes, in November 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether sick or in health, on the land or on sea, and whatever the pressure of my engagements might be. Eighteen months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. I thanked God and prayed on for the others. Five years elapsed and the second one was converted. I thanked God for the second and prayed on for the other three. Day by day I continued to pray for them and six years passed before the third one was converted. I thanked God for the third and went on praying for the other two. These two men remained unconverted. Thirty-six years later, he wrote that the other two, sons of one of Mueller's friends, were still not converted. He wrote, but I hope in God, I pray on and I look for the answer. They are not converted yet, but they will be. In 1897, 52 years after he began to pray daily without interruption for these two men, they were finally converted, but after George Mueller died. Mueller understood what Luke meant when he introduced a parable Jesus told about prayer, saying, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Mueller prayed for 52 years. And he saw three of them converted. The last two happened after he died. 
And that should encourage us. God will answer our prayers. It, we may not live to see it, but those prayers will work. And so keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. And Joshua asked a big, bold prayer of God. And God showed himself powerful and strong. He wants to do the same for us. Let's pray together, shall we? Perhaps as we close um, this morning and thinking about prayer, um, perhaps this is the time where God has been speaking to us. But I'd like to take a minute or two now to give you an opportunity to speak to God. That we can pray any place, anytime, anywhere. And so I don't know what, what the pressing need of your heart and life is. God already knows it, but God wants to hear it from you.